Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. As we sang just moments ago, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you will no doubt be familiar with that last word, Trinity. It's a very important word, but not because it's found in the Bible. It's not but because of what it represents. See, the church for centuries has used that word as a bit of a placeholder for all the data that we have of our holy God. God has revealed himself in this book by the power of his spirit, and it is a lot. He talks about himself, this infinite being, and he condescends to to tell us, finite creatures, what he's like, and we desperately and dependently collect all that data and we have this huge swath of information about the holy god and we say what do we say about this and the church says well trinity he is trinity it's a placeholder for all of this that's there the god we serve the god revealed to us in scripture is one god we know that well there is one god deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 35 God says, to you, to Israel, it has been shown that you might know that the Lord, he, singular, he is God. There is no other beside him. Just a couple of chapters later in chapter 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Psalm 86, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God, the psalmist writes. In the New Testament, we Catch more of the same. Paul writing to the Corinthians. They're having trouble with what to do with meat and food that was once offered to idols, and they don't know how to understand all of that. And Paul writes to them, and he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. One more in James chapter 2. James writes, says, You believe that God is one. You do well. In other words, congratulations. The demons believe that, and they shudder at the thought that God is one. The Bible is crystal clear from Genesis to Revelation that there is only one true God, and so Christians, in a very real sense, we are monotheists. One monotheos God, one God. That's what we declare because that's what the Bible clearly teaches. And yet at the same time, Our monotheism is not the same as the monotheism of of other religions, say Islam, for example. There's been a push in recent years to say Allah and Yahweh, the God of the Quran and the God of the Scriptures, the Bible, are the same. That is not true for a number of reasons, one of which is that our singular God seems to be plural. In fact, there are hints that even as we go back into early on in Scripture that there seems to be a plurality to this single God that we serve. In fact, in the opening phrase of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Fascinating because the word for God in Hebrew Elohim is plural. 
Now, the rest of that verse is all singular. This one God created the heavens and the earth, but this God is somehow plural in a way as well. How does that make any sense? Later on in that same chapter, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And we'd say, well, who is he talking to? He hasn't created anyone yet. Was he talking to the angels? And we say, it can't be, because we are not created in the image and likeness of angels. He is talking to himself. We see hints early on that there is a plurality to this singularity. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16. This is the Messiah speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And he says, come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God, that's Yahweh, now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. The Lord God has sent me, the Messiah, and his spirit. And so we, here we have the Messiah speaking of God and God's spirit. And we say, hang on, I thought there was only one God. Yes, there is. But this God seems to be plural at the same time. There's a plurality in this singularity. As one second century theologian wrote, though alone before creation, God was multiple. What? How does that make any sense? And here we just stop, and we are collecting biblical data. Remember, we are not elevating our own logic, our own reason above God's revelation and saying, that doesn't make sense, so it can't be true. We're not doing that. We submit our finitude to God's word, and we say, whatever you say must be so, even if I can't fully wrap my head around that. Here is one God, and yet there seems to be multiple in that one God. And as Scripture, scripture God's self-disclosure continues to unfold, more pieces are added to this puzzle. We're told that the Father is God. We're told that the Son is God. We're told that the Spirit is is God. And so there is one God, but there is three. And to make it even more complicated, all three are distinct from one another. You think of the scene at the baptism of Jesus. We have God the Son coming up out of the water, and he sees God the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And we hear God the Father speak from the clouds and say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Spirit, all there, all doing things, but there is one God. Or in the upper room, in John 13, 14, 15, 16, we have Jesus, the Son, the Son of God, saying, I must go back to the Father, but don't worry. When I leave and go back to the Father, He will send the Spirit in my place. Father, Son, and Spirit all together. We need to be very careful here. I know we're going into the weeds, but this is foundational to our faith, even if we can't fully comprehend it. But we need to be careful to understand that there isn't just one God who shows up in different ways certain times. That sometimes he shows up as the Son, and sometimes he shows up as the Father, and sometimes as the Spirit. That is a heresy called modalism. That is not what we believe. One God, three persons, existing always. They are separate persons who do separate activities, while at the same time, indivisibly and eternally, one. Now, some people will claim, well, that's a contradiction. Say, so it's not a contradiction, but it is a paradox, and the two are different. There's no contradiction there, but there is a sense in which I don't understand how those things work together. We are not saying there's one God and three gods. We are saying there's one God and three persons. It's different. This is not a contradiction. It is a paradox, however. So yes, we are monotheists as Christians, but we are Trinitarian monotheists. That's a mouthful, isn't it? 
Trinitarian, monotheist. Someone asks you, what do you believe? I'm a Trinitarian monotheist. No, I don't have to say that. <laughs> I'm a Christian. But so that we know. I want you to get this. This I'm now quoting from Oak Ridge Bible Chapel's doctrinal statement. This is what we believe. The Bible teaches that there is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal in being, identical in nature, equal in power and glory, having the same attributes and perfections and worthy of the same worship, confidence, and obedience. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now, most Christians today, I think we can agree, eagerly worship God the Father. Praying, our Father who art in heaven, singing, good, good Father, we have no problem with that. And most Christians today, most of us, long to know and serve the Son of God. God the Son, he who died in our place, Christ alone, we proclaim. But relatively speaking, many are ignorant when it comes to God the Spirit. God the Father, I understand. I understand fatherhood. God the Son, I think I can understand. God the Spirit is a bit of a, that's a mystery box, isn't it? Makes us nervous sometimes. We're really not sure what to do with him. He seems unpredictable. I can't really get my mind around the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes we just don't say anything about him lest we say something wrong or treat him wrongly. And while we should appreciate that, that, that care, he is still God and he deserves our attention, as we just read. What is the Spirit of God, is the question. What does the Holy Spirit do in this world and how are we to relate to this God? Is he that unpredictable and mysterious or does he want to be known just like the Son and the Father? So when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's often much that we don't know Unfortunately, there's a lot that we think we know and we're wrong about, and there's a lot that we would like to know about the Holy Spirit. And that is a whole lot of ignorance. And just like any relationship in this world, intimacy cannot thrive in ignorance. And so the more ignorant we are about the Holy Spirit, and knowing that the Holy Spirit is one person of one God, that we actually are ignorance in the Holy Spirit means that we're more ignorant in our God. And we don't want that, do we? We want to know who he is because he wants to be known. And so as was mentioned last week and the week before, this summer as a church family, we want to become more familiar with the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is the God that lives in us. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life, the Holy Spirit lives in you. There's an intimacy there that we have with him. We want to know the Holy Spirit. And we want to do that this summer so that our relationship with him can become increasingly enjoyable increasingly powerful and fruitful and meaningful. So that's a bit of an introduction to the series we're going to undertake over the next number of weeks, walking through who is the Holy Spirit and what is he doing in this world today? How do we relate to the Holy Spirit in our lives? And my job for this morning is just to introduce or reintroduce us or reacquaint us with the Holy Spirit. And my task this morning, it's a big task, but I want to do it under two broad categories. I want us to look at the Holy Spirit as a person and the Holy Spirit in the past. So the identity of the Holy Spirit, who he is, and the history of the Holy Spirit. What's he been up to? I mean, what was he doing in the Old Testament? How do we understand his work in the Old Testament compared to how he's working today? How are they similar and how are they different? 
So we want to look at the person of the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit in the past. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we want to start. We are going to be all over the Bible this morning and probably in the weeks ahead also, but there will be times when you can follow along and I'll invite you to turn with me and this time to Matthew chapter 12. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, when I first met my wife, I remember wanting to know everything about her. I was fascinated. I wanted to know her background and her family. I wanted to know her interests and fears, her hopes and dreams. I really wanted to know her thoughts on abnormally short men as potential spouses. I really wanted to hear that. I wanted to know everything about her. Why? Because I wanted to know her. I wanted to know her. And any study of any subject, particularly a person of God like the Holy Spirit, it must begin there. We want to know who he is. He's a person. We want to know him. Like, I wanted to know my spouse. Like, you want to know your friends, etc., etc. We want to know him as a person. In 2022, an American survey found that 60, 60, 60% of self-professing evangelical Christians believe that, quote, the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. 60% of Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. That is a tragic statistic. Not only because that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches, but it's really hard to have an intimate relationship with a force. We can't have an intimate relationship with a force. No, the Holy Spirit is a person, and we need to understand that, particularly as we begin this study into the summer months. If we don't understand that who we are about to study is a person who wants to be known, that will cut the legs out right from under this study. Now, Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, as most of you know well, is being confronted by Israel's leadership. He has been preaching and proclaiming that he is the Messiah. He is offering them the kingdom. And actually, in Matthew chapter 12, this is kind of the apex of the conflict where Israel formally rejects Jesus as both of those things. You see in verse 23, it says all the crowds were amazed at him because he's doing all these powerful works in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, could, could this be him? We've been waiting so long. Could this be him? Finally, the son of David. But the Pharisees, they hear this in the next verse. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So they look at the power of the Holy Spirit on, the, on display and they say, no, no, that's, that's Satan trying to sway the people away from the right conclusion. Verse 31, this is Jesus' response to them. <clears throat> he says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Now wait. He's talking in a Jewish context to Israel in the first century. When they hear blasphemy, what do they think? Slandering God Almighty, right? Talking wrongly about Yahweh. He says here, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Notice the distinction there. Verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, now he's brought himself into it. Against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Again, notice the distinctions between the persons. And notice also that Jesus is elevating the Holy Spirit in this instance. You can blaspheme the Father, Yahweh on high, it will be forgiven. You can blaspheme the Son, it will be forgiven. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now we're not going to tackle the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today, but for now, all I want you to notice is that the blasphemy of someone, it assumes that there's a person to blaspheme. That's what I want us to see. 
Sometimes my wife and I will overhear our daughter trying to dress her dolls and becoming frustrated because they won't cooperate. She can't get the leg into the hole. And we'll hear her insulting the doll. You silly thing. Get in. You silly doll. And she gets angry. Does the doll care? The doll does not care. Why? Because you cannot insult an inanimate object. You can't do that. You can't, you can't offend a force. You can't denigrate an aura. But you can blaspheme a person. That's exactly what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is a person, and Jesus says, you are blaspheming, you are denigrating, you are insulting, you are cursing the person of the Holy Spirit. Over in John chapter 14, we start to see the personhood of the Holy Spirit become continually on display by what he does and how he operates. He does person-like things, for lack of a better terminology. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Notice again the Trinitarian language. I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper. Verse 26 of the same chapter. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So here we have the person of the Holy Spirit actively and knowingly helping and teaching and reminding. Things that people do, persons do, right? Not forces or auras. As we continue on in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 8, we see that the Holy Spirit actually speaks as well. Acts chapter 8 says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. The Spirit said that. Same in chapter 13. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set, them apart for, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Spirit is saying these things. He's teaching. He's leading. The Spirit of God can also be pleased. He can be happy. He can be joyful. He can approve. Acts 15, verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Famously, perhaps, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, that assumes a loving intimacy. I don't want to project on you, but people I don't know, it's very hard for them to grieve me, to offend me. They say something poorly about me. If they, they slander me, if they insult me, if I don't know them, honestly, I don't really care. But if someone close to me betrays me, someone that I know and have invested in, if, if someone that I, in my family speaks poorly about me, that cuts me to the heart. That, that weighs on the heart, doesn't it? Keeps me up at night. It, it steals my appetite. That is a grieving. And that's what we do with the Holy Spirit. So to grieve the Holy Spirit assumes that we have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit to grieve him in the first place. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Spirit also, in Romans chapter 8, a passage that was, part of it was read for us just earlier, the Spirit also, we find, he leads and confirms our status with God and, and, and helps us to pray. In Romans 8, it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings 
too deep for words. I hope you're getting the picture. The Spirit is a person who does a lot of things. 1 Corinthians also adds something very interesting. Maybe you want to go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11 says this. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. It's a a beautiful passage. So we see here that the Spirit searches the depths of God because he is God and yet is distinct from God at the same time. He searches God on our behalf. We can't know the mind of God, but the Spirit does. And guess what? The Spirit lives in us. Beautiful. Famously, the Spirit also manifests himself for the good of the people of God in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. We'll get to that later in this series. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Again, these are all actions of a personal entity, not an impersonal force. Very important that we understand that. This is the description of the Holy Spirit as a person. He can be disappointed. He can be resisted and stifled and lied to. He can also teach and lead and guide and convict and testify. The Spirit of God is not a force or emanation from God. He is God, just like the Son and the Father. He is a person. Which means, wonderfully, that you and I can get to know him. That we can have an intimate relationship with, yes, God the Father, yes, God the Son, but also God the Spirit. In fact, we must get to know him. We dare not ignore him, kind of like, you know, awarding him the bronze medal of the Trinity. You know, the Father, the Son's pretty good too. And who's the other one? Um, Oh, yeah, the Spirit. It's blasphemy. This is one God. We want to get to know our God, and so we get to know him as he's revealed himself to us, and he is a person to get to know. Just like any relationship that we have, our relationship with the Spirit of God can be improved with attention, with time, with respect and love and thoughtfulness. Is that not how we grow our relationships horizontally as well? It's hard to have a close relationship with someone if you see them once a year, if you only correspond through letters, Those are hindrances to intimacy. But when we get to know the Holy Spirit as a person, that relationship can grow. Understanding that the Spirit of God is a distinct person of God can change the way we think about Him, we speak about Him, and we speak to Him, submit to Him, and worship Him. And again, I said it already, but at the very outset of this study, it's important for us to really wrestle with the fact that this is a person that we are studying And that will undergird the rest of our exploration over the next couple of months. We are studying the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, there can be a sense in which we overemphasize this, and so we want to be careful, because there are sects of Christianity that overemphasize a a fascination with the Holy Spirit, and we want to go right down the middle of the road. We want to allow the Holy Spirit to dictate his job description as he's done in the New Testament. We will see this as the weeks go on. The Holy Spirit has said, here's what I have come to do. I have come to glorify the Son. I have come to take you and point you back to the Son of God. 
maybe a crass illustration, you drive down the highway at night and you see a billboard and the spotlights are on, the advertisement, that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to point us and illuminate the sun for us to enjoy and study, but the Holy Spirit is still God, worthy of consideration. But we want to allow him to dictate his own job description at the same time. It's a wonderful thing that he is a person to be known and to be walked with. Change the way we think of him, right? Think, if he's a force, if he's kind of a, an aura out there that we can walk in and kind of be around and be saturated by, it's a way different relationship than a person who's in me, empowering me. Now, after Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension back to the Father, you know this well in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, he meets with his followers, his disciples, and he tells them a number of things, but one of the things he tells them right before he is lifted up into the clouds, he says, now, guys, stay in Jerusalem. Stay here because not long from now you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you will receive power. You're going to receive power to do the job I am giving you to do, to be my witnesses in this world. So what do they do? They listen. They stay put. I mean, the guy just raised from the dead. They're going to obey him, right? He raised from the dead. They say, okay, we're going to stay put. And then in Acts chapter 2, and you know this well also, the Holy Spirit is poured out like never before is poured out on the people of God. And from that moment on, even to our present day, the Holy Spirit has operated in some amazing ways that were distinct from before Acts chapter 2. And we're going to spend the next number of weeks unpacking some of the ways that the Holy Spirit works today. Acts chapter 2 on to the present day. But that does beg a question, doesn't it? I mean, there's a lot before Acts chapter 2. And if the Holy Spirit is eternal, what was he doing from Genesis 1 to Acts chapter 1? What is going on there? What is different? What has changed? And so that's my job now for the rest of our time together. We're going to cover Genesis 1 to Acts chapter 1. Long weekend, right? We've got lots of time. We've got an extra day for this. What we see as we study the Old Testament, now we're shifting from the Holy Spirit as a person to the Holy Spirit in the past. What was he up to? From his identity to his history. And what we see as we study in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was really doing two main things. He was enlivening and he was empowering. He was bringing life and he was equipping people to do his work. So I want to look at those one at a time as we go through the Old Testament. First, we see that he was doing this enlivening work. He was bringing life. And when we open the scriptures, we immediately see that the Spirit of God is present at creation. Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So we see here that the Spirit is involved in bringing forth all life, including the life of people. In fact, in Job chapter 33, Job himself says this. He says, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. See, the Spirit of God is involved in bringing forth life. Now, we also know that while the Spirit may bring life, sin brings death. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world and death with sin, and it spreads rapidly, doesn't it? In fact, by the time we get a few more chapters into Genesis chapter 6, sin is so pervasive and death is just everywhere that God says in verse 3 of chapter 6, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. It's a tricky text, but 
what we can draw from that is that, that while the Spirit brings life, He is also striving with humanity to give life. And when He pulls back, guess what happens? Life is restricted. Life goes away. So the Spirit is not only giving life, but He's sustaining life as well. Psalm 104 corroborates this. You send forth your Spirit, God. They are created and you renew the face of the ground. So not only does the Spirit bring forth life, but cultivates and renews life at the same time. So what was God's Spirit doing in the past, before Acts 2? Well, He was bringing and sustaining and officiating over life itself. God's Spirit was enlivening in that way. There is no life without God's Spirit. Life is in God's Spirit. But he was also, and more often it seems, he was empowering. That's what the Spirit was doing. He was empowering. In Exodus, the book of Exodus, uh, he, God is speaking of a man named Bezalel, and Bezalel is being equipped to build the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 31, God says to this man, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Very specific, no? This is the first time in the Bible we see the Holy Spirit filling someone, coming in and filling them. And notice, he's not filling them. It has nothing to do with salvation here. It's filling this man so he can be empowered to do the work that God has given him to do. That is, prepare this tabernacle, this place of worship. He can't do it on his own. So the Spirit of God comes and empowers him to do just that. Later on, speaking to Moses, God says in Numbers chapter 11, Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the Spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them, speaking of the elders of Israel, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it alone. So up until that point, Moses had been shouldering a lot of the load. Right? If you've ever read, you know, Exodus, I mean, you think, Moses, he's a man out front by himself sometimes, it seems, right? Man, that must be exhausting. That's not lost on God. He sees the burden that Moses is carrying, carrying it faithfully. He comes down here in, in Numbers chapter 11, he says to Moses, that spirit that has been empowering you to do this leadership job that I've given you to do, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to split it out into the elders of Israel so they can help you, to empower you to do what you are called to do. Again, God's Spirit is giving power to people for His work. Remember the story of Balaam? Balaam the prophet? The Spirit of God comes upon him and he speaks God's words, God's words through him because the Spirit is upon this unwilling prophet. Joshua, who is Moses' successor, Joshua was a man in whom is the Spirit and was commissioned for leadership, as we know. The Spirit came upon judges. Oh, the judges. Judges are just, it's a train wreck of a book, isn't it? Israel spiraling downward and downward in disobedience. Just chaos. But even in the midst of that chaos, God comes along and his spirit comes upon men like Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and even Samson. Three times Samson is given the Holy Spirit coming upon him to give him supernatural strength and to lead God's people out from oppression. Those are tasks that they could not do without the Holy Spirit coming upon them to help. The Spirit also came upon King Saul. But in his rebellion, Saul, he scorned the Spirit, you may remember. Saul was not a man after God's heart, was he? This was the first king of Israel, and he blew it big time. 
So much so that it says in 1 Samuel 16, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. It left him. That means he had the Spirit of God, but it left him because of his rebellion. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. That's a chilling verse. And this is one of the major distinctions between Acts chapter 2 and onward. There are things that the Holy Spirit does not do now that he did then in that way. We're going to celebrate that in the weeks ahead. In fact, David, he notices Saul. He sees what happened to Saul. And I think motivated by that, David wants to live differently. David, in contrast to Saul, David's life is surrounded by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in that same section, it says, Then Samuel, the prophet, took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. That's the beginning of his ministry, right? And then we come to the end of his life in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And David is singing his last song, his swan song. He's about to go out. And what does he say? He says in 2 Samuel 23, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Looks back over his life. He says, the Spirit was with me, speaking through me, comforting me, using me as his vessel to do what he wants to do. And again, I think he paid careful attention to Saul. And he saw Saul and his rebellion against God and the Holy Spirit leave Saul. And David did not want that to happen to him. In fact, in Psalm 51, he asks specifically against this. He calls out to the Lord. He says, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. See, he knew that he had the presence and power of God's Spirit, but that his sin with Bathsheba had grieved the Spirit and strained their relationship and that his empowerment could be taken from him by God. Again, we say hallelujah. That is not our plight today in the New Testament. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and we will get to that in subsequent weeks. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon people for a task and could leave just as quickly. In fact, I think that David was very concerned about this, which is why in Psalm 143, he says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. What a prayer. Let your good spirit not depart from me, but lead me on level ground. So what was the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, up to in the Old Testament? Well, I hope you can understand that this is a quick flyby. There's so much more to talk about. But he was certainly enlivening. He was bringing and sustaining and officiating over life itself. And he was empowering. He was protecting and teaching and gifting and equipping people to do his work his way. Tasks he was giving people to do that they could not do in their own power. So the Holy Spirit helped them came along and empowered them to do that. And those two things, let's just face it, we need those things as well, don't we? We need life. We need a life that is better. We need a life that won't expire. We need a life that won't disappoint, a life that won't be snuffed out, a life of joy and purpose. We want life, don't we? Of course we do. And that, that's the Holy Spirit's specialty. He is the, the one that enlivens. And we say, come Lord, come Spirit, give us life, breathe new life into us. He is the life-giving Spirit. We also need power. God has given us some hard tasks, hasn't he? Go and make disciples of all nations. Stand firm in the faith. Goodness. Do not move. Contend for the faith. One for all. Given to the saints. These are, these are hard tasks. How do we do that? Raise a family properly in the fear and admonition of the Lord like was prayed for before. There's all sort of honor, father and mother. That's a tough one sometimes, isn't it? 
all these tasks which are beyond us, and we say, hang on a second, if only we had a power, if only we had access to a power that could help us to do what we're called to do, even though it's beyond ourselves. Oh, wait, we do. The Spirit gives us life, and the Spirit empowers us to do what we are called to do, but which is beyond us by ourselves. The same Spirit. Now, we need to be quick to acknowledge we're not living in the Old Testament. So we ask the question, okay, what about us? Well, the Old Testament also, and you know this well, predicts a time when the Holy Spirit of God would anoint a specific individual, a servant Messiah, to bring life and to bring power. Isaiah chapter 11 says this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, on this individual, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah adds in chapter 42, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And when Jesus shows up in the gospel accounts in Luke chapter 4, he basically takes that verse and says, That's me. I'm that guy, I'm that servant, I'm that Messiah, the one on whom the Spirit rests, who's going to bring justice, that is me. And we know that as we follow his life through the gospel accounts, is his life not characterized by life and power in the Holy Spirit? That's exactly what he did, right? He came to bring life, that we may have life and life to the fullest, didn't he? In John chapter 3, speaking to Nicodemus, he says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot, you have to be born again. There has to be new life by the Spirit that we may have it to the fullest. And his ministry was also characterized by the enabling power of the Spirit. Signs that testify to the veracity of his message. In fact, John closes his gospel account this way. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones he did record, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life and power. Jesus came along showing the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? To verify his message. He comes along and says, I am the Christ. Anyone who believes in me shall live even though he dies. He made a lot of bold claims, didn't he? Jesus made, said a lot of things that most people are like, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Even to his grave, they're saying, this guy's crazy. He's making some bold, bold claims that he cannot verify. Oh, wait, he came back from the dead. Maybe we should listen to him. You know, he actually said, I'm going to die and be raised again on the third day. And they're like, what? That's crazy. And then he did it. He called his shot and did it. So maybe some of the other things he said were true also. So he did miraculous works, the power of the Holy Spirit on display to bring life. The Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament, coming into focus in a person and then in Acts 2, spreading to all of us. And we're going to study that, as I said, over the next number of weeks. Now, as wonderful as the ministry of the Holy Spirit was in the Old Testament and during the time of Jesus, and it, it was that, it's even more wonderful today. It's even more wonderful today. If you say, that sounds a little heretical. That sounds dangerous to say. Well, it's not me saying it. It's Jesus saying it. Jesus said, it is better today. Let me read some excerpts from the Upper Room Discourse. This is where Jesus is about. He's on the doorstep of his own death, and he's promising, he's comforting these disciples who are grieving. You're going away from us, and you're going to suffer. What are we going to do? And they're scared, and he's comforting them and saying, someone else is going to come. 
to help you. And he promises the Holy Spirit a few times. But listen to his words as he says, yes, the Holy Spirit's work was powerful and wonderful then. It's going to be even better now, uh, after I leave. John 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. He's not going to leave you like he left Saul. He's going to be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 16, verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? Because, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Stop there. How? They must have been thinking, what? Finish that sentence, Jesus. How could it possibly be to our advantage that the Messiah, the Christ, is leaving us? How could that be better? How is that possible? But he says, for if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In verse 12, the same chapter, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. See, as wonderful and powerful as the Holy Spirit was operating in the Old Testament, and he was, fully God as he is, Acts 2 and beyond, something has changed. Something foundational, something amazing, and we are going to spend weeks studying what that is, because that's where we live. We live in this place where the Holy Spirit, he empowers us, yes, but he indwells us. He seals us, he sends us, he teaches, he prays for us. This is our helper, God in us. Now we're going to sing a song as we close called There is a Redeemer. Speaking of Christ, and remember that is the Holy Spirit's self-given job description. I want to glorify Christ. I want you to know Christ. But you know the chorus well. There is a Redeemer. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit until the work on earth is done. Do we have work to do? Do we have work to do? We have a lot of work to do. And it is beyond us, isn't it? I can't do this work. You can't do this work. Even the little tasks he gives me, I am ill-equipped, but he gives us the spirit to help us do exactly that. I'm going to invite the music team to come. I want to close in prayer with an old Puritan prayer that I found this week. Please bow with me as we pray. O Holy Spirit, as the sun is full of light, the ocean full of water, heaven full of glory, so may our hearts be full of you. Vain are all divine purposes of love and the redemption wrought by Jesus unless you work within, regenerating by your power, giving us eyes to see Jesus, showing us the realities of the unseen world. Give us yourself without measure, as an unimpaired fountain, as inexhaustible riches, we hate our coldness, poverty, 
emptiness, imperfect vision, languid service, prayerless prayers, praiseless praises. Help us. Help us not grieve or resist you. Come as power, Holy Spirit. Come as power to expel every rebel lust, to reign supreme and keep you and keep us yours. Come as teacher, leading us into all truth, filling us with all understanding. Come as love, that we may adore the Father and love him as our all. Come as joy, Holy Spirit, to dwell in us, move in us, animate us. Come as light, illuminating the scripture, molding us in its laws. Come as sanctifier, body, soul, and spirit, wholly yours. Come as helper, with strength to bless and keep, directing our every step. Come, Spirit, as beautifier, bringing order out of confusion, loveliness out of chaos. Magnify to us your glory by being magnified in us and make us constantly aware of your fragrance. Our Heavenly Father, we pray these things desperately but expectantly in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.